You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Paul Fain, your host. The fall semester is firing up, and once again, the coronavirus is creating havoc at college campuses. The disruptions to childcare, jobs, and much more can be particularly challenging for community college students, many of whom already are stretched very thin in their lives. For this episode, I spoke with two community college leaders about how they're keeping their eye on the ball with student success, including what happens to students after graduation. Tanja Williams, president of St. Petersburg College in Florida, talked about a new law in the state that gives students a money-back guarantee for their tuition in vocational and technical programs if they don't get a job six months after completion. It is really encouraging the colleges to work closer with our career source and workforce teams, as well as our business and industry partners, because we cannot afford to have a dead weight program and a student not get a job. I also spoke with Randall Van Wagner, president of Mohawk Valley Community College. The New York College has worked hard to create clear pathways to credentials, reducing the average amount of credits students accumulate by 17 credits over the last two years. But this move cost Mohawk Valley more than $4 million in state funding and tuition revenue. Something that the community colleges haven't talked enough about, in my opinion, is in general across the country, most state funding models of community colleges are built on our inefficiencies when we're funded by FTEs. So the more credit hours students take, the more money community colleges get. And yet our mission is student success. At the end of the episode, we'll hear from two experts at JFF who share their thoughts about what we heard in the interviews. So stay tuned to hear from Dave Altstadt, an associate director at JFF focusing on policy, and Taylor Mag, an associate director in the JFF policy office. Thanks for listening. Hello to you both. Good morning. The life of a community college president is never dull, uh, but that is particularly true now, I'm guessing, for both of you with your academic years starting, and I believe in Tanja's case today. Let's start with what's going on. Just briefly, what are you dealing with right now in this incredible time, Tanja? The first thing that we're really looking at as presidents, or at least I'm um, tussling with, is making sure the campus is safe. We know that we have... um, I think we've done a great job technology-wise and online. SPC was 50% online pre-COVID. So that part wasn't the the biggest issue. It's now the safety piece. Mask, unmask. Require vaccines, don't require vaccines. Go back to 100% virtual or start going back to campus. What we chose at SPC is we chose to go back to campus. Our students chose to remain on Zoom. The majority of them are moving faster to Zoom type classes. Our independent online classes have taken a hit and we've added more of the Zoom. So we're back on campus. Mask wearing is expected and highly recommended indoors. We're sanitizing the facility. So we're dealing with that. And I think the second thing that we're dealing with as college presidents is trying to make sure that the programs we're offering will lead to high wage paying jobs that students won't have a diploma on their walls and still work under minimum wage. And so we're trying to build the plane while we're flying it. And with COVID, we have a lot of unknowns. We have employees that are out sick 
and we have to make up for that loss. So we're dealing with that. We're dealing with funding, enrollment declines. People are trying to figure out, do I feed my family or feed my mind? Which comes first? Well, that's a lot. Thanks for setting the stage there, Tanja. Randy, how about you? You've got a week till your academic year starts. How do you keep the momentum going amid all this uncertainty? Similar to SBC, our students, we build a schedule based on student needs through wait lists. And here, just a little bit before the start of the semester, we're about 60% remote, whether it's remote synchronous or asynchronous online. And then we'll be implementing weekly testing, which we've actually maintained through the summer here for our summer classes, weekly testing for the unvaccinated and trying to maintain that level of stability and with having the appropriate staffing pattern on campus as well so that students can still have that vibrant, as vibrant as COVID will allow student experience on campus. It's a lot again. So let's turn to student success. Tanja, you mentioned the goal being not just completion, but getting a good job, a well-paying job, a career. Not easy to know what jobs are going to be there right now, but in your work, obviously we know Florida has a performance funding formula in place. There's been a lot of federal money tied to different things lately. Can you talk a little bit about the incentives and how they work and how they don't work, frankly? Perfect. Our governor has a vision that Florida will be the number one workforce state in the nation by 2030. And with that, a lot of our resources are going towards workforce development, rapid credentialing, short-term credentialing, and high-wage paying jobs. And our commissioners really focused on how do we make sure colleges are offering the right programs that are going to yield to high-wage paying jobs. And so we've taken a look at all of the businesses that are moving into town, what are the programs or jobs that are hot, and are we offering the training for those jobs, et cetera. A part of performance-based funding in Florida is academics and making sure that not just any student complete, but all students, our minority students, the students in poverty zip codes, that make sure everyone succeeds. And so one of our number one goals is to make sure that students progress and complete their degrees or certifications. And there's funding tied to certifications. You get funds based upon how many students earn their credentials and complete the test to be credentialed in a short-term based program. The other side of that is how many students with financial aid are actually completing. Those are your poverty students, the ones who need more help to get through. And then thirdly, they're now looking at, I would say we're looking at, how many students in short-term programs and AS degrees actually get a high-wage paying job within six months after completing. So that's House Bill 1507, which is brand new. And so it is really encouraging the colleges to work closer with our career source and workforce teams, as well as our business and industry partners, because we cannot afford to have a dead weight program and a student not get a job. So the way we're doing this now and the way performance is gonna work, it's beyond the degree. It's beyond the certificate. It's in the job or transferred to the university. So it's that next step. So the responsibility of the college has expanded beyond completion. And for the students, that's great because you're getting the help you need to either get that job or transfer to that university. And so Florida is very intentional on this work and very detailed on making sure we achieve this goal by 2030. What makes it hard 
is that the funding is not given towards those goals because it costs a lot more to assist a student who's starting farther behind the start line than it does to be able to pick and choose your 4.0 students and get them, you know, we don't get to do that, do we? We don't no. get to pick our students. And you guys hear me say it over and over. Our students pick us. And then our job is to take them from where they are to where they want to go. So the funding needs to be aligned with more than just FTE. Because if you just do it based on FTE, we're not going to have enough resources that it takes for those outside classroom support needs that no one thinks about and a human could possibly need. But we have people who just don't have it. And so in order for us to get them across the stage, it's a, it's a hefty penny to do that. It costs a lot of resources, a lot of software, and a lot of nudging to keep those students engaged, especially those who are still struggling with, do I feed my children? or feed my mind. And they need to be able to do both. And so I think part of the funding challenge is funding for FTE is a little bit more challenging for the colleges to be able to sustain and move these underprepared or underemployed individuals to completion. We saw some of the debate over full-time enrolled funding in the CARES Act, where you're starting to get some recognition, at least in Washington, finally, that yes. part-time students uh, have different needs and funding should be structured around that. Randy, so I know you, your college has been on the student success reform path for a while. You've worked on guided pathways. Can you talk a little bit about the success you've had and how that's been reflected in funding? Yeah, Tanja's point about keeping the curriculum current and aligned with workforce needs and creating a more efficient path and clarifying that path for students through the Guided Pathways framework. For us, it's actually surfaced something that community colleges haven't talked enough about, in my opinion, is in general across the country, most state funding models of community colleges are built on our inefficiencies when we're funded by FTEs. So the more credit hours students take, the more money community colleges get. And yet our mission is student success. So <laughs> as we've remapped our curriculum and added so many changes through Guided Pathways from implementing multiple measures and blowing up developmental ed with co-requisite integrated learning sessions we have, by implementing other reforms around advising, we combine four job descriptions into a single student support advisor just in time for the pandemic, which, you know, fall of 19, we make this move to a single point of contact. And now we've got a 225 to one advising ratio, which couldn't have been better for the pandemic. You know, they go into the pandemic and have to make a call into a general advising number and see whoever. No, they've got one person. They know that person's name. That's their student support advisor to see them through. When we went to scale in fall of 2019, our graduating class this past year, 2021, showed some dramatic results compared to the graduating class of 2019. And granted, this is, you know, under the fog of COVID, so we'll have to see what pattern emerges. But this this early data show that the graduating class of 21 graduated with 17 fewer credit hours per graduate than our graduating class of 2019. So just as we got ready to celebrate all that, one of our senior leaders at the college pointed out that that is built on our inefficiency with the funding formula such that if this kind of work continues, that this is at 17 credits per graduate, 
So that's $2.5 million in state aid and $1.6 million Amazing. in tuition. But it really has surfaced this issue of how dramatic as community colleges get better with their efficiencies and clarifying the path and keeping students on the path and graduating more students on time with shorter term credentials and moving back and forth between the workplace and the college experience as jobs change and training needs change very rapidly, the funding models have to change. You both mentioned the need for wraparound support, how much of a difference it makes, particularly now for the students you serve. What sort of funding incentives related to that would help? What, what would you like to see or other areas where you'd like to see incentives structured towards your students right now? And let's, let's start with Randy. You think of CUNY's ASAP program and for all the national recognition it's gotten, a small fact that isn't talked about is the fact that only 11% of that ASAP funding goes toward direct instruction. The success of ASAP is really in those wraparound services. And that's what we, we have found as well. We have a college community connection program that started as a campus pantry. And now I, I think of it as our own in-house make-a-wish program because with our partners with nonprofit and county department of social services, we have so many partners at the table that our staff can address just about any crisis or acute need that any student has. So instead of having to wait in line at social services to fix their benefits, choose between standing in the line or going to class, our, our staff can say, you go to class, we've got a direct dial, bat phone hotline to a <laughs> case manager at the county so that when that student comes back from class, they can take care of that. So whether it be a state funding that recognizes that and has allocations for those types of supports or one of those many colleges that have instituted a student support fee that only it's only $40 a semester, but there again, it puts it on the back of the students when it would be nice to have some component within a state funding formula that addresses the reality of how important those services are. Thanks, Randy. Trying to look at the positive here, not easy to do right now, but it does feel like the pandemic has made it easier for folks, whether in Tallahassee, Albany, Washington, to understand the needs of students a little bit more, I hope. I hope I'm not being Pollyannish here, but it feels like people get the time poverty problem more than they used to, the childcare needs. Are you optimistic? I mean, Randy, it's hard to be optimistic when, frankly, you're being disincentivized from doing what you've done. But do you feel like folks are getting a better sense of how, how to best serve a student in a way that you have to do a little less explaining? We found certainly last year through the pandemic, the conversation in Albany was, was a little more connected with the community college reality. We're recognizing that there's a need for a funding floor, that if we're just solely based on enrollment and enrollment goes down, then state funding goes down. And typically during recessions and the economy goes bad and enrollment goes up, our state funding goes down then because we can make it up in tuition. It was so we need that funding floor and we got it temporarily, at least for this current year. So yeah, the conversations are changing along those lines. The challenge will be to continue to shift that conversation toward that performance-based incentivized funding and have the dollars follow the metrics. Absolutely. Tanja, last word for you. The conversation's better reflecting reality in your state. I believe that it is better reflecting this year that Florida colleges were highly supported by the state and by the governor. And we are very grateful for that. 
in a way that we've not been supported in over 10 years. And so for us, it's been very positive. And I think because the focus is so much on short-term credentialing and making sure that individuals get high-wage paying training so they get high-wage paying jobs, but all of it is to fuel the economy and get Florida back to where we know it can be, but also better. I'm looking forward to them becoming more aware and more engaged with the regular worker in our communities. These are the folks that keep the cities rolling and they they work, learn and play there. They come to our institutions and they live there. And so these are our citizens. These are our residents. And to finally start recognizing them as people and also the engine for the economy for me was very refreshing. I too am concerned about the sustainability and hoping that this is not like a little popularity thing that goes away because this is how it's always been. These are the people who have always fueled the economy for decades. So hopefully this is a group they will embrace and keep close and not it be this popular thing, especially when we look at equity, diversity, and inclusion. I think that our country is going to rely on us being more mindful and planning to support these populations to break that generational poverty, to get more people to work, and to get our economies really hopping. Tanja, Randy, thanks to you both. I think that's a great note to end on. I know you have a power pack day ahead of you, so we appreciate your time and good luck this academic year. All right, now I'm going to turn to Dave and Taylor from JFF. Stick with us. So to try to make sense of what we just heard, I'm I'm joined by Taylor Mag and Dave Altstadt. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Good. Hey, Paul. It goes without saying that the folks who work in the two-year college space are pretty busy right now. There's a lot of uncertainty about the return to campus, about whether or not programs can can meet in person, and also what sort of jobs they're preparing folks for. So let's talk about the funding. At at the same time, we're talking about a a once-in-a-generation shift in in funding priorities at the national level and at the state level as well. So, Taylor, let's start with you. How can we, in this very difficult moment, try to better calibrate those funding streams? Thanks, Paul. Both Tanja and Randy talked a lot about the disruption from the pandemic and how it is more important than ever to ensure post-secondary education leads to in-demand employment so people can learn the skills and credentials necessary to rebound and advance during this very tumultuous time. I want to call up specifically, Tanja talked about Florida and how the state's moving to some policy that requires a job guarantee or money back framing, which kind of further proves this point and that labor market alignment is so critical to meet the needs of today's students and job seekers. But I mean, colleges can't be expected to do this alone. And I think both presidents highlighted that really clearly, that there is a huge need to work with the workforce system and employers to ensure this programming is high quality and aligned to local talent demands. I also think state and federal policy can play a huge role here in incentivizing this partnership and collaboration. But Paul, to your question about funding, Money and resources is also crucial to this conversation. And I just think a huge piece of this puzzle is increased resources for workforce development and to the systems that work on these issues like our post-secondary education leaders and workforce leaders because they really need to be more supported. And we're hoping to see future resources for these efforts and recovery packages from Congress. 
going to be an interesting couple months on that front. Dave, what did you hear that relates to the creation of better incentives? Yeah, I want to pick up on a piece that you said on the top, Paul, which was this once in a generational funding, right? We know all the relief measures that were put in place starting last spring. Now there's the talk of the free community college proposal from President Biden and proposals on Capitol Hill, as well as a lot of different efforts that states are doing, utilizing federal money and their own state funding to try to address all the things that Taylor was referencing. You know, people are out of work, need to reskill, upskill to get in into a job. And, and with all that, rightfully, probably so, is a renewed and increased sense of accountability, right? And you've already seen this play out in the debate on free community college, where people are wondering, should we really pour all this money into community college when across the entire sector, you know, completion rates probably aren't where anyone and everyone would hope? So this comes back down to like, okay, well, with increased accountability, what are we incentivizing? What are we funding? How are we supporting these institutions to transform and to increase uh, student success, to accelerate completion, and to close equity gaps? And clearly, the issue is, as we're asking all them to modernize and do right by the local community and people, we need policymakers to modernize our funding because the current structure, as Randy so clearly stated, is that our funding model is based on inefficiencies. We're encouraging our colleges to focus just on enrollment and whether it's not completion, to focus on just delivering courses and allow students to take up as much time as they need it because it racks up FTE. When we know that students will not stick around. Time is the enemy. And so there's so much that we need to reconsider on how to do funding of higher ed better. So I'm looking forward to further talk on that, on those pieces. Yeah, I was pretty stunned by Randy's example there. I mean, it's just hard to imagine that anyone would think that was a good way to uh, structure funding for community colleges. Taylor, you know, I, I heard a lot from both of them though about trying to work more holistically with students, wraparound supports. When Dave talks about accountability being here to stay, it seems like that focus is gonna be a big one going forward as well. I couldn't agree more with everything Dave said. And then Paul, your question really hits the nail on the head. I mean, the holistic supports of students are finally being recognized after this pandemic because it demonstrated that just tuition assistance alone is not going to help someone persist and complete in programming or even persist and complete in employment. So we know these other assistance and supports are critical for student and worker success. I think both Randy and Tanja talked about this and the aid needed beyond tuition. I also think the higher education relief funds that happened in one of our first stimulus packages, the CARES Act, has been a fundamental step for longer-term investment from federal policy and the basic needs of students. But I also think there is a lot more that can be done to better support today's students. And I think Randy touched on this a lot, that it's, of course, housing, childcare, nutrition assistance, but then also career navigation, counseling, and how do students find those services and have access to them. So one practice that I thought was really promising from the conversation and can solve some of these barriers is the co-location of services. 
so students don't have to travel to multiple places to understand what they're eligible for and what services they need, but they can go to one localized place and get whatever can help them proceed on their career pathway. So I just really like that practice. And I think there are policy fixes at the state and federal level that can, again, better incentivize that work happening on the ground. Dave, any of those sort of policies you want to highlight now or on the accountability front that you'd really want listeners to pay attention to? Yeah, on that holistic student support front, I think it was also telling Randy's point about the highly successful CUNY ASAP program, right? So going back to what we actually find in higher ed, we find by FTE, which is based on course enrollments. So it's course instruction, but that course instruction cost is just 10% of that program. All the other wraparound sports, the robust, intrusive advising, the wraparound supports, transportation, childcare, and the other kind of structural changes that the CUNY colleges and other colleges around the country that have replicated ASAP have undertaken. Those are the other major costs. And, and yet we're not funding that in states at a federal level. And so we need to think about those pathway aspects of what needs to be funded, the student supports. And also we need to be thinking about how to incentivize and encourage colleges to get on this transformational journey and stay on it, especially at a time like now, where for very good reason, right, their attention and energy is at the most fundamental level around COVID, right? How to keep students, staff, faculty healthy and safe on campus, how to have some semblance of, you know, delivering courses on campus or in person, make, continue to make these changes. It's really easy just to put the reform agenda to a side at a time when it's so much, even that much more necessary. Because, right, this, we need to help students, today's students, get in and through and get the credential and onto the career that they need. And so we need colleges to stay on this journey. And for that to happen, we need to invest in them. We need to provide them the funding to make these upfront expenses, to go to like a case management approach to advising, for instance, that Randy mentioned. And that by doing those reforms, right, it, they will pay off dividends over a long term, right? There will be this return on investment. There's the short term pressure that Randy and other Mohawk and other colleges are facing where they're losing that FT. But if they make this complete change, more students are going to be persisting and getting a credential. So those are the kinds of things that we need to change in our funding all with an eye toward equity, right? Who is coming into the doors? Who are we helping to get through? So this is the time, I think, as policymakers are wondering, hey, what is workforce development? What's community college doing to actually help the economy? Well, what are, what are we doing in the policy sphere to really make this reform that's so necessary for today and, and the future? We'll leave it there. Dave, Taylor, thanks for talking this through with me. I feel like we did make some sense there. 